Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, we have been reading 2 Corinthians together this fall. It is a letter that Paul wrote um, because his relationship with the church in Corinth had been damaged and uh, his leadership had been questioned. So Paul writes this letter uh, to pursue reconciliation, to deepen restoration with his friends, and to try to regain um, some footing as a trusted leader. So we're going to pick up where we left off. I'll read the first part of chapter 5 for us this morning, uh, verses 1 through 10. You can follow along where it's printed in the order of worship. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not found, be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home in the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. This is God's word, and it's given for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask uh, that you would use this word uh, that we've just read together that we're going to talk about uh, and think about for a few minutes together to show us the word incarnate, to show us Jesus, the one who is seated with you right now, like us the one who has our flesh, who is seated with you praying for people like us. Show us his grace and uh, change us by it. And we ask it in his name. Amen. Well, when I, was, uh, when I was a little kid, my older brother and I wanted an Atari 2600, and we lobbied my parents pretty hard uh, to get one. In case you don't know uh, what an Atari 2600 is, it was kind of uh, the home gaming system of the late 70s and the early 80s. It wasn't the only one in town, but it was the one that we wanted. Um, and so my parents came up with this plan. Their plan was that they would give my brother and I a quarter uh, every day until we had enough money to buy an Atari. Now, this was not uh, a guaranteed quarter every day. It was tied to some index. And I don't remember the exact details of what it was tied to, but I'm, I'm pretty sure it had something to do with completing whatever chores we had to do at the time and not beating each other up every day. So we set at this thing uh, in earnest. Um, but you probably know how this was from my perspective. I mean, I had no idea uh, how much an Atari cost. I had no idea uh, when we would actually uh, have enough money to buy an Atari. I had no idea if my parents like, held a little meeting every day where they decided that the funds could be released for that particular day or not. And this probably goes without saying, um, but I never saw 
any quarters transferred into my possession or any evidence that any quarters were transferred anywhere at any time. Um, and the truth is, I didn't care about any of that. None of that mattered to me. I did not need to know how the system worked. I just knew what my mom and dad said to me, and that was enough. I knew they were good for it. And so the Baker boys kept it real for a long stretch of time. <laughs> a really, really long stretch of time. And sure enough, at the end, we got an Atari 2600. And I think that that is a, uh, a pretty good window into the mindset, into the way of living out a life of faith that Paul is talking about when he writes to his friends in that part of the letter that we just read together, so we are always of good courage. Yes, we are always of good courage. Now we read that together. We know exactly what it is that Paul was talking about in that part of the letter. He's talking about his failing body. And by extension, he's talking about our failing bodies too. He's talking about our unavoidable mortality. He's talking about what happens after we die. And so much about those things remain mysterious to Paul. Sometimes they are confusing to Paul. If you read not just here, but wherever Paul talks about this, it's clear that he doesn't know the precise mechanics of everything that happens after we die. But those things, they do not concern him one bit because God has told us some things. God has given us his word about these things, and Paul believes that God is good for it. As he puts it in verse 5, he who has prepared us for this very thing is God. <laughs> and he has given us his spirit as a guarantee. So Paul doesn't need to know the precise mechanics of everything to live faithfully right now. He does not have to walk by sight, as if any of us really could ever do that when it comes to ultimate things. It is more than enough to walk by faith in the promise of God. And this gives him good courage. And I know that I need to learn and lean into that again today. And maybe you do too. So why is, uh, why is Paul talking about all this stuff? Well, as we've seen over the last several weeks, his life and his leadership have been called into question. Uh, there was a minority at the church at Corinth who was wondering if Paul could be trusted as a leader. And the accusers that were stirring up that minority, as far as they were concerned, one of the things that disqualified Paul as a leader was the inordinate amount of suffering and the inordinate amount of trouble that he uh, faced in his life. He appeared weak to them and feeble and ailing most of the time. It looked like he was a magnet for trouble. And so Paul's been saying, listen, man, these, these things don't qualify, disqualify me. They don't disqualify anyone else. Because these are the places, our suffering and our weakness and our trouble, they're, they're where God's glory and grace are most clearly seen in this life. They're the places in our lives that carry the lingering fragrance of Jesus' life. He suffered for the life of the world. And so when we're faithful in our own suffering, we serve as a witness to him. So Paul doesn't hide this stuff in his life. He's not ashamed about it. He doesn't want to not talk about these things tells his friends, we, we always carry about in our bodies the death of Jesus. We carry that around in these jars of clay so that the life of Jesus will also be manifest in our bodies. And living out the truth of this stuff requires people like us to look 
to the unseen eternal things. Not the things that aren't there, not the things that don't exist, but the things that we can't really see yet. So that's what Paul's been saying. And I, uh, I can't always uh, follow a mind as fertile as Paul's. And uh, if anyone tells you they can, they're pretending. But one thing is clear, that all of this talk about suffering and trouble, and in particular, um, talk about his own suffering and his own trouble, uh, has made him think hard about mortality. And it's made him think hard about death and his own death. It wouldn't surprise me at all if there were times in Paul's life, maybe when he's writing this letter where he thinks, you know, this life is going to kill me. The way I do things, I'm going to end up dead. And he's not wrong, of course. So he introduces a metaphor, three of them, in fact. The first one is a tent. Now, some of you might know that Paul's side job was making tents. That's how he supported himself most of the time. And so he's had occasion to think about tents, to think about their transience, and to think about their impermanence. We know, Paul writes, that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building, a house not made with hands, a building that's from God. If the tent gets folded up, if the tent gets trundled away like tents do, there is something better waiting for us. And this, church, is Paul's way of talking about the resurrection, but not resurrection in some, you know, hazy sense like springtime or new life or something like that. He's talking about the physical bodily resurrection, the stuff that we confess that we believe, that every Christian everywhere confesses that they believe when they say in the creed, I believe in the resurrection of the body. Now, there's lots of things to say about this. But maybe the one, one of the most important things to say about this is that for Paul to talk like this, for him to write like this and preach like this, in first century Greco-Roman culture, it is deeply provocative and it is deeply challenging. And here's why. I mean, it wasn't quite universal, but it was a widely held widely believed idea that our bodies are kind of like prisons and they're prisons for the really important part of who we are, which is the immaterial part, which is our souls. That was widely held and widely believed. And so death was actually viewed as a freedom. It was viewed as a liberation for the soul. Finally, I can escape from this body. And that view that view church was so deeply held and it was so widely believed that it still hangs around today. Lots and lots and lots and lots of people still believe that the most important part of a human is the immaterial part of a human. But I want you to know that the story of Scripture has always very stubbornly said, that's wrong. That's not true. Scripture doesn't ever play games that split humans up into one part or another part and play those parts against each other. The story of Scripture begins like this, with God making our bodies and filling them with his breath and calling them very, very good. That's how the story starts. 
And the story of Scripture ends. The end of the story of Scripture is not a bunch of souls floating around between clouds. The end of the story of Scripture is with us in newly made bodies, living and eating and laughing and walking around on streets of a city. Our bodies are good. In fact, they are very good. And they are part, church, they are part of what God redeems to himself in Jesus. Our bodies, your body, my body, is part of what God reconciles to himself in Jesus at the end of all things. I mean, when Jesus ascended to the Father, he did it with a resurrected body, with hair and fingernails and lungs and blood pumping heart through his veins, and a heart pumping blood through his veins and a brain with synapses firing in it. And Jesus is there right now in the presence of the Father like that. And precisely because he is there like that, if we follow him in faith, we will be in the presence of the Father like that. So Paul, you know, mixes his metaphors, (laughs) but it helps us get the point. Tense now, impermanent and temporary, a building later, eternal, from God. Now sometimes, sometimes when Paul would talk about this and preach about these things, he would get laughed off the stage. There's this great story in Acts 17 about just that. He's preaching in Athens. He mentions the resurrection of the dead, and some people mock him. But there are other people there. There are other people in Athens that day that say, hold up, hold up, hold up, wait a minute. We'll hear you again about this. Now, I don't know exactly why they wanted to hear him again, but I wouldn't be surprised if it had something to do with them knowing deep down in ways that maybe they couldn't articulate that the idea that God gives us new bodies instead of just throwing our bodies away, that that sounded about right. That something about that rings true. Because it doesn't degrade our humanity. It affirms our humanity. As Paul says, mixing in a third metaphor in verse 4, not that we would be unclothed, And by that, he's talking about a soul just floating around somewhere. But that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up in life. Our bodies, your body, my body, they are very good. And God tells us that. And he tells us that again in particular, and maybe most importantly, when we groan in those bodies because we definitely do. (laughs) Fallen bodies in a fallen world groan because they are the scenes of trauma and they're the scenes of suffering and trouble. And so we groan. And so we get told what the future will look like so that people like us can have good courage right now in the present. So listen, church. And especially um, those of you who are suffering in your physical bodies right now or caring for someone who is suffering in their physical body. If you follow Jesus in faith, 
it won't always be like this. You'll be restored. You'll be made perfect. You will be made complete. You will be swallowed up by life. And that is not an empty promise that some preacher is making to you. The one who has prepared us for this very thing is God. And he has given us his spirit as a guarantee. It is absolutely true, and he is good for it. And you know, we should not forget why Paul was talking about this in the first place. Paul is talking about this because he suffers physically, and everyone can see it. He's talking about this because he is reflecting on the fact that his body is failing him. And, And the point that he's been trying to make to his friends over and over again is that our physical suffering, in a way that we can't fully understand, in a way that is a mystery to us right now, our physical suffering is somehow by faith connected to the sufferings of Jesus. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. And so church, this means people like us don't give in to despair and we don't give in to despair when we suffer physically or when people that we love suffer physically. We don't walk away from God. We are called to draw closer to him because he is the place of surpassing power. I don't think I can express this any more clearly and honestly in a more true way than one of you did, than how one of you did at a women's event a while back. This was one of you who said your spiritual life can flourish even in the midst of very real suffering and sadness. Peace and sadness are not mutually exclusive. God doesn't ask us to pretend that we're happy or to try to hide our feelings from him. The Bible is filled with people like David and like Paul and like Christ himself who experienced powerful encounters with God when they cried out in their darkest moments. We draw near to God. He is the surpassing power that has made promises to us. And church, suffering isn't only a place where we can draw closer to God. It's definitely that. But if Paul is right in everything that he's been saying over and over again, our suffering can also make the life of Jesus more manifest in this world. Our faithful endurance can and does serve as a witness to Jesus. Our suffering is not for nothing. Our trouble is not for nothing. These These things are. You know, in the holy, divine scandal of how God works in this world, they are pointers to Jesus' life. So Paul says, we are always of good courage. We're always of good courage. And then in verses 6 and 7, he adds something that's really important to that. He says, while we know that we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. So Paul isn't saying that being away from God means that we're cut off from him or disconnected from him or something like that in the present life. I think what he's saying is that 
um, we're away from the one who holds all of the mysteries. You know, Paul knows just the broad outlines of how things are going to work out, but he can't pretend to know all the intricacies of God's mysteries. The Apostle John uh, says the same thing in a really beautiful way in 1 John 3. The Apostle John says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. That's the kind of careful and proper humility that you always see whenever the New Testament writers talk about this. That's why we walk by faith and not by sight. But church, faith is not an abandonment of ourselves into the absurd. It's not an abandonment of ourselves. It's not a step off into the darkness. It's way more helpful for us to think about it as a step into the light followed by another step into the light. And we don't know exactly where it's going, but we just keep going further and further into the light. I mean, I didn't know. I didn't know how my parents were going to keep up their end of the bargain that they made with me and my brother. I just knew that they told me we would. They would. And that was enough. How much more so, church, can people like us trust the God of the world who has already given himself for our life and the life of the world? How much more can we trust him? He has made promises, and those promises are good enough and more than enough to give people like us good courage to walk after him in faith. And so in verses 9 and 10, uh, Paul rounds out this part of the letter by returning to something that he has uh, talked about before a bunch of times, sincerity and open-heartedness, that he's not hiding anything from anybody. And Paul always connects this to knowing uh, that he lives his whole life under the gaze of God. We make it our aim to please him, he writes because we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in his body, whether good or evil. Now, it might seem a little bit when you read that like Paul is changing the subject, but I don't think that he is. I actually think it makes perfect sense. I mean, if God cares about our bodies, if he has created our bodies to be very good, if God has a good future prepared for our bodies that is intended to give us good courage now in the present, then it would be really weird. It would be really strange if he didn't care what we did with them right now. This, again, is one of those things that Christians affirm all over the world when we say in the creed, from thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead the living and the dead. Now, church, of course, as Paul teaches again and again, Scripture everywhere teaches this again and again, we're not forgiven by doing a bunch of good things, as if any of us could ever do enough good things to pull that off. We're not forgiven that way. We're forgiven because Jesus stepped in and he took our place. He took our sinfulness. He gave us his righteousness. We're forgiven by grace alone, through faith alone. And trust me, that is the only way any of us in here, any of us, will ever stand in any judgment before Jesus, is if we have rested in faith in him. But forgiveness, it doesn't lead people like us into moral indifference. It does the opposite. As we grow in our apprehension of just how much we have been forgiven, it leads us to love 
in ever-deepening gratitude. We, we want to please the people we love. As Paul puts it, we make our aim to please him. As Jesus puts it, those who are forgiven much, love much. And church, that, that final moment of judgment, that final moment of setting the whole world right again, it's not just something that helps us think about the present right now, which it definitely does. That moment that's coming where the world is made right, where it is set back to the peace that it was always created for, that's the moment that gives us meaning. It gives the whole universe meaning. It gives us confidence. Because that's the moment where we realize that the true story of the world has reached its consummation. That's the moment where every knee bows to the one we call king right now. It's, it's when the faith that we walk in finally becomes sight. To go back to the Apostle John and finish his thought. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. So church, we always have good courage. Let me pray for us. Father, we, um, if we're being honest and unguarded, we feel like that thief did on the cross who just said, Jesus, just remember me when you come into your kingdom. And we ask that you would help us to hear um, with the ear of faith that incredible answer that is beyond knowing. Today you'll be with me. Today you will be with me in paradise. Father, help us to take good courage in the promise that you have made to us. Help us to believe again that you're good for it. Help us so that when we suffer now and when we care for those who suffer now, we would have good courage. Do this so that we'll grow up in our faith. Do this so that we can be a people through whom you love this broken world. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Please rise and sing.